I got to tell you, we were talking about the air conditioner this morning, and uh, we turned it on, and then I was like, between like right for second service, I was like, oh, it's so cold in here. And Joseph's like, don't worry about it, man. People are going to get in here, they're going to suck up all the cold air, and it's totally true. It was so hot. So you guys are like cold air suckers. I don't know. I don't know if there's a technical term for that, but that, that's my term for that, so whatever. I have two announcements for you. Uh, first one is uh, we got some more Reason for God books, and so we're doing this series right now called The Reason for God, based out of Tim Keller's book. We're giving one copy to every family, so if you didn't get one, we have some more at the Welcome Center. If we run out today, we'll, we'll still get some more this week, so there is some every week to hand out. Uh, I heard something kind of cool. One guy was actually on a plane going to visit someone in his family, and he, and he was reading the book, and he handed it to the person that was flying next to him. They asked him about it. It's like, cool. So yes, we will give you another one if you happen to do that, okay? Because I think it's kind of kind of cool to do. Uh, so also, if you have a hard time reading, you don't like, like words on a page, you'd rather listen to it. As I keep saying, feel free to go to audible.com. You can get The Reason for God by Tim Keller. He actually reads the book, and you get a free 30-day trial. And if you don't want to keep Audible, you can, you can get rid of Audible and still keep the book and listen to it. It's yours. So you can do that there as well. The second thing is we keep telling you about baptisms that are coming up on September 30th. And actually, that, that's all changing. I don't want you to get mad at me, so I'm going to explain to you what's happening. Usually for baptisms, we get together and we have a big party. We invite everybody together. And what we found over the years is there are a few people who are, who are involved in element who really want to get baptized, but they're scared to death to do that in front of a large crowd of people. Like, if you don't want someone to pee in the pool, don't put them in front of 250 people when they're trying to get baptized. Right? So... Uh, what we're doing is we're going to do a couple smaller baptisms. And if you are somebody who has wanted to get baptized, but being baptized in front of, you know, 300 people really freaks you out, uh, talk to Sarah at the Welcome Center today. And what we're going to do is we're going to have like two or three weeks that we're going to do smaller ones where it could just be you and a couple close friends or something like that. And we'll go ahead and baptize you that way. We, and ultimately, we do want people to get baptized in front of everybody because it's supposed to be a large party. But we also understand that there are some people who are really uh, worried about it. I don't want to say scared, but maybe you just have you know trepidation being in front of that many people. So we're going to do it a little bit differently. Um, so having said that, I know what you're thinking. Where's my party, right? Because at Element, it's like, we know baptisms, where'd the party go? Well, here's where the party went, okay? On your calendars, marked on October 28th, because we have the return this year of pumpkin killing. So put that on your calendars. <laughs> put, that on your, put that on your calendars. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to launch pumpkins. You're going to be able to carve pumpkins. You're going to be able to eat pumpkin pie, all kinds of stuff. So you can go home like you were at a party because you're going to be sick because of all the junk you ate and throw up and be like, oh, that was a party. I threw up. Yeah. So uh, October 28th, put it on your calendar. It's a Sunday pumpkin killing. You can invite your neighbors to it. Uh, the pumpkins are free. You know, the, the pumpkin pie is going to be free. Well, I always think it's funny when I say it's free because Element buys it, but that means you guys gave, so we bought it with your money. So, yay! Okay, so, <laughs> so it's sort of free. <laughs> uh, but put that on your calendar. So there will be a party thing that we all get to get together and do. Uh, but hopefully, you guys cool with us doing baptisms like that this time around? Yeah. And if you weren't, you're going to be like, what? Right, so, yay! All right, so this is good. So people are going to go get baptized. I'm still coming to your house. You can swim in life. I'll tell you when the pool is heated. Then you can do that. 
Uh, yeah, that was it. Hey, so welcome to Element. If you are new, uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables around the room that look like this. Uh, they're short. They're half sheets and not full sheets like normal. And they are only going with the message that I'm giving on, on Sunday mornings. Uh, if you want to go deeper, we invite you to get involved in a gospel community. And there's some questions that we will go deeper in that. And you'll read the chapter in the book. And But I, what I want to do is give you these so you have something to talk about with the chapters or with the sermons that that we go for but we are encouraging you to be get involved in the gospel community to go through the questions with them so we go deeper into things that we are talking about if you have a smartphone you can download an app it is called uversion click on more and then events in uversion will come up by gps in your smartphone you'll get sermon notes verses questions announcements everything that goes with today's message my name is aaron i'm one of the pastors here once you stand with me for the reading of god's word and this is john chapter 14 verse 6 and it says, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you in the words that you have said. And that we would be able to take great comfort in who you are and what you have done to rescue us. And that we as your people would step out into this world as your ambassador speaking of who you are to everybody. Knowing that our great God is good and rescues us and calls people to himself. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is our second week in the series I've been talking about, Tim Keller's The the Reason for God. As I mentioned last week, throughout 2018, we were doing different series to try and help grow us up together as a community because I was always talking about in in six months and two years and five years we're going to be doing these things and always throwing that stuff out. One of the guys on staff said, hey, how about, you know, in our new space, 2018, we kind of focus on element and build them up. And I said, great, I'll plan for that. You're a slow crowd. Okay, so so what we've done for this year is, is we started with these series, trying to grow us up and to understand the gospel, understanding who God is. It's not to make us ingrown or anything or anything like that. What it's meant is a way for us to have communal growth together as a people to help grow one another. Uh, this series is meant to help us be able to be people who speak about our faith in a way that is real and true and right. And so uh, people in our world are going to have a lot of questions about stuff, but guys, we have a reasonable faith of a God who has stepped into human history in reasonable ways that we can speak about. Belief is not just this nebulous thing that sits out there somewhere, and if you muster up enough belief, well, then you have faith. No, faith is trust in what God has done. And sometimes our, our trust is very small. Sometimes it's really big. But through all of that, we trust the one who has rescued us, and that's what it comes down to. And while we will follow the book, and we won't always do it word for word in messages, I'll typically take a larger concept, just kind of talk about that, so you as individuals can then read the book and then get more out of it. You can get together and dive deeper in gospel communities and notes nights, uh, maybe with friends around coffee or breakfast or, or things like that, because we want you guys engaging and growing, especially in what we're going to talk about this morning. This morning, we're going to talk about one of the biggest issues people have with Christianity, and that is, is its exclusiveness. Uh, the verse we started with, John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that sounds very exclusive. And it's it's probably one of the most controversial statements Jesus ever made, even in the day in which he lived in that culture. In Rome, you could really worship any god you wanted to, as long as you also worship Caesar. 
uh, the Christians and the Jews said, we're not going to worship Caesar. And the Jews got a special dispensation from Rome not to have to worship Caesar. But the Christians who were, came out of Judaism, the Jews eventually said, well, they're not Jews. They're not part of us. And so that dispensation went away for the Christians. And a lot of people in Rome just looked at Christians as atheists because they wouldn't worship any God that was really known to these people. And this message that I'm going to give you this morning, I wrote a lot of this for an Easter sermon from a few years ago when I first read Keller's book about this topic. So I'm going to steal some from that. But Keller likes to point out that people today ask questions based on that statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And they say, well, isn't it arrogant to say your religion is right and other people's religion are wrong? And doesn't that lead to intolerance at best and maybe violence that we're all horrified by at the worst? And are you honestly telling me that because we have different religious beliefs, you get to go to heaven and I'm going to hell? So let me start up front by saying religious and spiritual arrogance and intolerance and contempt is a huge problem. It has been a huge problem throughout history. It's a huge problem in our day if you even just watch the news. So hear me on this. Arrogance is something that Jesus consistently spoke against. Our world is filled with arrogant people. Sometimes the people who claim for the most tolerance in our world end up being the most arrogant people. But it's also true that Christianity, they're some of the most arrogant and smug and judgmental and exclusive and self-centered, self-righteous, superior, cranky people that I have ever met. You know how I know that? Because I know me, and I know you. You're welcome. And we're all kind of in that same boat. So take today and understand that what I say is in the best way I can muster in a spirit of humbleness, but also great confidence in the person and the work of Jesus. Today, in our culture, again, we have a lot of people talking about tolerance, but I will tell you, for people who follow Jesus, tolerance is not enough. It is not enough because you can tolerate somebody and still not love them. And we are called to be a people who love our neighbors as ourselves, and we really love ourselves. And so we need to find a way not just to be tolerant, but to actually learn to love those around us. So much of what drew people to Jesus was his humility, his knowledge of the truth. He is God in the flesh, and yet he got down on his hands and knees, and he washed the feet of his followers. It is this humble, serving Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Those words don't sound like humble words to us. So today, as clearly, as openly as I can in this, I want to look at this statement in our vernacular that we would probably say Jesus is the only way to heaven. Okay, So that's what we're going to look at. And if you find uh, what you think I'm going to say offensive, please set aside all your preconceived ideas today. And just let's kind of begin to talk about this and and walk through it and the words that actually lie underneath what Jesus is actually saying here. Because I'm not going to take all the controversy out of the statement, but maybe in the end it can at least be controversial for the right reasons and not the wrong ones. Okay? Sound like a good plan? Okay, all right. So let's start with the end of this statement with the word heaven. Okay, Jesus is the only way to heaven. I'll give you your dessert first. Huh? Heaven, all right? So heaven is an important word. Most people on our planet today believe in an afterlife. 90% of the people on the planet Earth believe that life goes on beyond death. And most people assume that they know what heaven actually means, but they've never given really any serious thought to it. One author writes this, Most people have a cartoon picture of heaven. Harps, clouds, singing all day, every day, forever. And that's why they're kind of ambivalent about it. It's like we all think that heaven's a really good thing. We all want to go there when we die, but we're not in any real particular hurry to get there. It's like that song, everybody wants to go to heaven, 
but nobody wants to die, right? It's like that. And so what we do about heaven is we start to make these jokes about heaven. Like, here, here's a joke about heaven. Uh, there are these three guys. They're all buddies, and they die at the exact same time, and they go stand before St. Peter at the pearly gates. And he walks up, and Peter says, Welcome to heaven. And he grabs the first guy, and he goes, Here's your reward. And he takes him, and he handcuffs him to the ugliest girl he has ever seen. And he's like, St. Peter, well, what is this? And he goes, Well, when you're a teenager, you're treating your parents like garbage. And he's like, Ah! Oh! So he grabs the next guy and does the exact same thing for the exact same reason. And the third guy comes up and St. Peter says, Welcome to heaven. Here's your reward. And he handcuffs this guy to the most beautiful girl any of his friends have ever seen. And they're like, what? How does this guy get, get that girl and we get, we get this? We know some things he did that was worse than we did. And he said, Well, when she was a teenager, she treated her parents like garbage. <laughs> These are jokes that we tell about heaven. Right? Interviewers, all the way back to Larry King and Oprah, they all would talk to religious leaders, and their first question is always, well, who's going to heaven? It's not, what's heaven like? And everybody has their ideas of what heaven is like, and I don't know where it came from, but somebody somewhere came up with this idea that has now gone around that heaven is whatever you like. Whatever you want, that's going to be heaven. It's going to be the eternal pleasure factory. So whatever your idea of pleasure is, that's what it is. If you like playing golf, then it's the eternal golf course. And if you like gambling, it's the eternal Las Vegas. If you like surfing, it's the eternal Hawaii. Whatever your idea, then that's what heaven is going to be. And so you have then this assumption that, of course, anybody would love to spend eternity in heaven as long as I'm allowed to actually get into that place. And I want to tell you the most important thing you need to know about heaven, and especially how Jesus and rabbis would all talk about it, how the scriptures all talk about it. Because for Jesus, this is the idea of heaven. It is the rule and the reign of God in our lives. It is the idea that heaven and the idea that is meant to be life uninterrupted with God. That's what heaven is. And if you had to pick one single thing that runs all throughout the Bible, it would be the Bible is all about life with God. God created human beings so they can know Him and be in a relationship with Him. Not because He needs us, but because we need Him and God is a good God. You go to Genesis chapter 2. Adam and Eve, they're walking around naked in the garden eating fruit. It's beautiful. In Genesis chapter 3, it says God's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That's a picture of life with God, and it's beautiful. After sin enters the world, God calls His people Israel to meet Him at this mountain. And I will meet you there as my people because it's a picture of life with God. Later, God says, build a tent and then build a temple, and I will meet you in this place because it's a picture that God is coming to meet with us. It's about life with God. When Jesus comes, he is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Jesus dies, rises from the grave, and we're told by his spirit, he brings us back to life again, so Christ lives in us. It's the way of saying that it is life with God. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. All the way through the end of the Bible, you have this picture of our life now and life with God and how this comes together. When the Bible talks about anything that resembles an afterlife in any way, it's usually described as a city because that's a picture of community. John says, Revelation 21, verse 3, this is what he says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. It's like God is like, or John's like hitting this over your head here. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, stay in Revelation 21, leave like one finger there and then flip over to uh, John chapter 17. Heaven again is life with God. Uh, we sometimes use this phrase called eternal life. It's, it's a great phrase. We throw it around a lot. But do you know that Jesus defines eternal life one time in the scriptures? Just one time. It's in John chapter 17, verse 3. 
And this is what he says. And this is eternal life, that they, that's his followers, you, me, people, know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that people know you, God, not just know about you, but know you, you, to be fully immersed in who he is in the way that we live our lives, to follow him in, in what we do because we trust him. The presence of God living in and through us and what we do. That's eternal life. That's life with God. Now go back to Revelation chapter 21. You've got to understand, heaven does not contain God. Okay, God contains heaven. And we all want to shrink God down so he's manageable in our own minds. This is why I always tell you that God had to reveal himself because we would never understand him if God didn't reveal himself to us. And so you got to understand, heaven is not some great big city where there's some corporate headquarters and God's sitting behind a desk. And if you want to go meet with him, you got to go and sign in, and maybe wait in line, and one day you'll get to see the great Oz when you get in there. That's not how it works. Revelation 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's Jesus. What does that mean? It means that God is everywhere. In Christianity, we like to use this word called omnipresent, that God's presence is everywhere. It's impossible to avoid Him. And if you don't want to be around God, then you really don't want the life that heaven itself promises and what heaven itself is centered upon. Let me ask you a question, and and don't raise your hands to this because it's kind of a weird question, but has anybody here ever committed sexual sin? Again, don't raise your hand. Uh, And because if you didn't, you'd be a liar, and you know where liars go, and we're trying to fix that today. So, So, I mean, somewhere at some point in your life, you looked at something you shouldn't have looked at, you touched something you shouldn't have touched, all kinds of stuff. We live in a fallen world, right? So usually there's something like that. Now, one writer likes to point out, he says, I bet most people did not do that while their mother was watching. Now, your mother may have caught you, right? But you wouldn't have done if she knew she was watching. You had to go someplace your mom was not to do something you know your mom would not approve of. Approve of. Now, our understanding of heaven is that there is no place where God is not. And if you want to gossip, or you want to hoard, or you want to self-promote, or judge other people, or be cynical, or exclude somebody, get all puffed up or be jealous, where are you going to go? Right? Where are you going to go? God's everywhere. John Ortberg wrote this. He said, Heaven is a certain kind of community where certain qualities like humility and generosity of spirit and honesty and truthfulness and commitment to other people are as predictable as gravity is here. Heaven is the kind of place where people who want to sin and just live in sin and live away from God, they're just miserable. It's like a chain smoker has to fly on an airplane. Like if you don't smoke, planes have gotten much nicer. If you do smoke, it's like horrible for you because you can't do anything. It's a miserable experience. Heaven is life with God that nothing, not even death, can interrupt. That's a different idea, right? Right? Well, it should be. It should be. And so if that's heaven and that's a kingdom of God, well, what about a way there? And this then is so often misunderstood when people get heaven wrong. Because what we need is not a way to be allowed inside heaven. We need to become how to become the kind of people for whom heaven and life with God is fitting and appropriate and right. There's this old hymn called Rock of Ages. And in it it says this. It says, Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Sin needs a double cure. First off, you've got to save me from wrath. Because if God is any kind of good God, He's going to be mad at sin because it brings death and messes up relationship and destroys the creation that He made. And so it's God who says, I am angry, I am wrathful at sin. Something needs to be done with that. And yet it is God who is willing to do that for us and save us from His wrath against sin. Jesus goes to the cross and takes that wrath upon Himself for our sins with His death and resurrection. 
In, John, or in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, it says, We are justified by His blood, but how much more are we saved from the wrath of God by His life? I mean, these, this is beautiful words. All the wrath of God on sin, which is just and holy and true and right, Jesus took that upon Himself for us. Secondly, we need to be remade and renewed. Like in the hymn, the making a pure part seems like the, the harder part of, of this whole thing because the reality is most of us don't want the pure part. What we want is we want to have this thing called Christianity that has a set of beliefs that we do these things and then we get to go to heaven when we die. But we don't want it to really mess up our lives right now. See, people ask, do you mean to tell me I'm going to go to hell because I'm not a Christian? No, not at all. No. Hell, and we're going to talk about this in another week, is reserved for a place of people who want nothing to do with God. It's a place that's reserved for people who are in sin and sinful and sinners. And yet that's something that all of us are a part of, and this is why God has to rescue us. Because the last thing in the world a sinner wants is eternity in the ceaseless presence of a holy God where any possibility of sin, even it's really desirable, is forever cut off. And you can never get away, not even by dying, because you used up your one and only death. What are you going to do? You can't get away. You're just stuck there. In Reformed theology, there's this idea called, called total depravity. And it's that we always seek our own good and not God's good. I sometimes think that heaven is a place for people who can actually stand it. <laughs> the problem is, as a sin-addicted people, none of us could ever stand it. And our culture's way of thinking about stuff and things, of course everybody wants to go to the pleasure factory. And God is the big meanie trying to keep people out of the pleasure factory and he's so exclusive. But in reality, no one really wants heaven. No one really wants the kingdom of God. No one really wants life with God. And it is God who is the one who is bringing people in. We are the ones who are exclusive. We are the ones who try to exclude God from our lives. And God is the one who is coming and calling his children home. That's a different idea. Think about this. If we really wanted heaven, not the cartoon place, not the pleasure factory, but real life with God, our earth would look much different today than it does. And what you see in the scriptures from the very beginning is God is offering life with him. And nobody wanted it. And everybody keeps running away. And God is the one who keeps seeking people and bringing them in and rescuing them. That's the beauty of the scriptures. And so when people have the wrong idea of heaven and exclusivity, then of course the question becomes, well, who's going to make the cut, right? How, how little can I believe or how much can I disagree with this theology and still make it? Or how far can I get off track and how mean is God going to be about it? And many writers have pointed out when people ask questions like that, really the question is, you know, what's the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when I die? That, that's the question, right? But nowhere in the Bible does God ever say, and nowhere does Jesus ever say, let me now proclaim to you the minimal intimate requirements for getting into heaven when you die, right? Because if that was what it was, that would be very useful to know. <laughs> but, but, he, but he doesn't do that, right? Getting into heaven is not the kind of thing you do if you're trying to find the minimal entrance requirements for finding the way in the back door. I, imagine this. Uh, my wife and I have been married 26 years this year. And it's really weird. Last summer's people clapped. And I'm like, why are you clapping? <laughs> anyway, so we married 26 years this year. And, and, if, and if on our wedding day, <laughs> and if on our wedding day, I said Marianne, because that's her name, right? If on our wedding day, and I said Marianne, I want to know what's the least amount that I can do and still be married to you. What's the lowest level of commitment you're going to take in this? And, and what are the fewest affirmations? And what's the smallest promises? And what's the least amount of fidelity? And, and what's the highest level of ignorance I can have and still be married to you? Right? I probably would not have gotten married. And if I did, I certainly would still not be married today. This is why salvation rests in the hands of God. 
because we are a people who are always coming back and saying, what's the minimal entrance requirements? You know, what, what's the little thing I have to believe or do or don't do? Instead of actually beginning to be people who live life with God now. Guys, our faith is in our great God that does right by every person. He does what is good and just and right by every person. It's like Abraham says in Genesis 18.25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Of course he will. Of course he will. God does not do anything unloving. John says the connection between God and love is so strong that God is love. Not that love is God, but all we know of love comes from God himself. And in God's love actually comes justice. And if you read the scriptures, Jesus has some very hard warnings about subjects like, you know, judgment and afterlife and heaven and hell and our need for repentance and, and all of that. But, but also tells us we can't overestimate God's justice, just like we can't overestimate his love. But what we typically do is we underestimate our own sin. We underestimate all the ways that we run from life with him. You know that, that of all the people who believe in hell, only 1.5% believe they'll actually go there which is a higher figure than I thought it was going to be, right? I mean, you got to be really depressed. Yes, I'm going to hell. Nothing I can do about it. It's just, I'm going, right? That's it. The truth is it should be sobering for Christians and non-Christians alike. Like, here's something that's sobering. Just because somebody calls themselves a Christian or goes to a church or belongs to a certain political party does not mean they actually follow Jesus. Jesus actually says this, Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Because we are a people who deceive ourselves in so many ways. Well, if I just do this or I just do that, then God owes me. He's got to let me in, in that door. This is why Jesus did not say, a religion called Christianity is the way. He said, I am the way. What I am going to do is I'm going to die for what separates you from God and each other. And I am going to provide a way for you to be in a relationship with the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And through his teachings, we learn about our sin and the truth about God. And through Jesus, we learn the gospel, the good news that his death on a cross becomes our death to express the forgiveness of sins. And his resurrection can become our hope. And his community can actually become our family. I am the only way. Right? Let me talk about this word, word only, that Jesus is the only way. In the book, you should read it, chapter 1 this week, Keller does a great job outlining why outline religion and condemning religion is never going to work. And if you have ever thought all the religions are equally valid and all teach the same basic thing, well, one, you're wrong. Two, you should read the chapter. It would be a great chapter for you to read this week. If you think each religion sees just a little part of the truth but not the whole truth, one, you're wrong. Two, you should read the chapter. It's a great chapter for you this week. If, if, if you think, you know, uh, that, that it's arrogant for Christianity to insist that Jesus is the only way, one, you're wrong, two, you should read the chapter. It's a great chapter for you to read. Okay, so, so read the chapter. There's that. Okay, but when Jesus says that he's the only way, it does not mean that we don't have anything to learn from any other religion upon the planet. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. I have been asked to tell you what Christians believe, and I'm going to begin by telling you one thing that Christians do not need to believe. If you're a Christian, you do not have to believe that all the other religions are simply wrong all through. If you're an atheist, you do have to believe that, all, that the main point of all the religions in the whole world is simply one huge mistake. If you're a Christian, you're free to think that those religions, even the strange ones, contain at least some hint of the truth. When I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race have always been wrong about the question that mattered most to them. When I became a Christian, I was able to take a much more liberal view. And what this means is we believe what Jesus says. And there's a lot of places that we will agree with people in other religions. And it, and it means that we will love and honor and respect people of other faiths. But it also means whenever people's teachings disagree with the teachings of Jesus, I think they're wrong and I trust Jesus. I follow him. 
But I will not blindly pretend like there are no differences. Like sometimes in our day, people will say things like, all religions are basically the same. Therefore, I think it's arrogant and unloving to think that you're right and somebody else is wrong. But what if I disagree with that statement? Then all of a sudden, you think you're right and I'm wrong and you're the arrogant one. What? Oh no, what just happened there, right? Think about this. Truth by its nature is exclusive. It's just the way that it is. It's just the way truth works. If something is true, the opposite cannot be true. Years ago, people used to believe that people lived on the moon, that there's an atmosphere on the moon, and people, people live there. And now we're like, nobody lives on the moon, there's no atmosphere. They can't both be right, unless we build a dome, and people live under the dome, but you know what I mean, right? right? Some people used to say that if you could hold your breath and sit in water long enough, your body would grow gills and you can breathe water. And other people say, you know, you're going to die like that, right? They can't both be true. Are you following? They can't both be true. And if Jesus says there's a God, And he's got a character, and he can be known. And there are a lot of Buddhists who say there is no God, or God can never be known, or Hindus who believe there are many gods. They cannot simply all be true. Somebody has to be true. And it does not mean there may be a Buddhist who's a way better person than I am, or maybe even way smarter than I am, but contradictory claims about God cannot all be true. And it is arrogant to think that we can be a people who can define what truth actually is for ourselves. Arrogance is when we come in and we say, no, God, you can't be right. You can't be right. I'm going to believe this instead. This is why God reveals truth to us. But here's some good news. Arrogance, it's a heart problem. It's not a truth problem. And it can be fixed. You you, you can't fix arrogance by creating a world where nobody can be right and just have religious uncertainty. In fact, the Bible says arrogance is a much bigger barrier to faith in God than simple incorrect opinions. Now, 1 Peter 5.5, he says this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It doesn't say God opposes people with incorrect opinions about himself. The danger is closed, proud, self-sufficient hearts. And the prouder a heart becomes, the less able it is to recognize how proud that it actually is. And this is why we do not need a religion We do not need this set of beliefs. What we need is a person, somebody, who has stepped into time, into our mess, to bring about the good news of the rescue and redemption of us. All that we can never do on our own by running away from God, we need Jesus to step in and actually take care of us. And that takes you to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father in relationship with God except through me and what He did. We live in a world today, and it is groping around in darkness looking for spirituality. It's looking for God. He is found in Jesus. To the Hebrews who had the totality of all the Old Testament law and the words morality and circumcision, the answer to all that is Jesus. To the Greeks who look for wisdom and insight and learning and life after death and answers and meaning, it all found its culmination in Jesus. I think Jesus answers every question anyone has about God. And I think if it cannot be answered in Jesus, it can't be answered. Because into our darkness, God has sent one pure, clean answer to dispel our confusion. And the answer is Jesus. And He leads us back into life with God. Back into relationship with Him again. Because we are, we are the campers lost in the woods without a light. And Jesus is the light that leads the way home. Earlier in our, in our gospel series, I, I told you guys practically a right understanding of the good news of Jesus and who he is brings four things to our lives. And I want to hit those one more time. Uh, first off, it brings hope. Because we know whatever circumstances we are in at any given moment is not the final word. That God's word is the final word and his word is eternal life, life with him. Secondly, it brings the ability to yield ourselves to the will of the Father. It doesn't mean that we are passive and throw our hands up. We yield to God in hard places so we get through it and move on into true eternal life, 
life with God. The third thing I think it brings is clarity of how much God actually loves us and what He did to rescue us. Because when Jesus was arrested, the ropes did not constrain Him to His beating. The nails did not hold Him to a cross. His love for us did. God is bigger than our error and is bigger than our mistakes and He will bend everything to His will. God is tremendously mighty. And God wants His people to be in relationship with Him. Fourthly, it brings freedom because we live in a world that is obsessed with controlling and predicting tomorrow. Who, what's heaven? Who's going to get to go? We don't need to worry about all that because we don't need to know the future because we know God. And He holds the future in His hands and He is trustworthy and there is so much freedom in that. And if we have a proper view of who He is and what He has done and how He calls us in as His people, that is what changes us. At the time of Jesus, things looked just like they do now. The Romans thought they needed a bigger and better government to fix everything. The Jews thought they needed a better religion to fix things. And as things change, nothing changes. Because a bigger government's not going to fix anything. And a bigger religion with more morality is not going to fix anything. Pretending there are no differences with absolute truth is not going to fix anything. Only Jesus, as the way, the truth, and the life, what He has done to rescue and redeem people is what actually begins to fix things living eternal life with Him as He called us. One way to the Father, Jesus, life with God. And I hope that is a different idea than than you've had, or if you've had it, great, and you've lived that way. Because exclusivity is not the idea of God just going, no, you can't, no, you can't. God is going to come in, and we're the people who keep trying to exclude Him from everything. This is my life, God. How dare you tell me what to do? I'm not going to follow. I'm not going to, I'm not. We exclude Him. God is the one who steps into our mess in the midst of our sin. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the mess that we made, God steps into it so that we can be his children and come back home again. This is what our God has done to rescue us. It's not about you trying to do it better and you figuring it out. And if you get all the right steps, and well, then you get to go. It's about trusting Jesus, which you talked about last week, trusting him and what he has done to rescue us. Because He's good. And it's not about our effort. It's about what He has done to rescue us. This is why we come to communion every single week. It's a reminder of what He did to rescue us. It's why you break the cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of His blood that was shed for you and me as a people so that we can be brought in. This is God with His arms extended out bringing us in to Him. And this is what we're supposed to proclaim. This is why we proclaim Jesus, not not a set of do this and don't do that. We proclaim Jesus and his redemption and salvation of us as a people. Because God is calling people home, and he uses us as his ambassadors to do that. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. Uh, There'll be some deacons in the back if you guys need prayer. Uh, they'd love to pray with you. Maybe if you've been in a spot in your life where where you've thought that, that Christianity is about you trying to figure it out and do it all right, and the right way, and the right time, and all of that. Well, they love to pray with you about that. Because we become a people who begin to understand what God has done to rescue us, and it changes who we are in everything. We get to be a people who go out with arms wide to say, God is calling us in. God is calling out for rescue of lost people. Guys, that is not an exclusive thing. That is something we are called to proclaim. The goodness of a God that chases down a people who have tried to exclude Him. Our God longs to bring us back in again.
Uh, there's offering boxes next to every single door we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We don't pass a plate. It's a response to what he's done. Uh, there's food outside. I always grab something to eat, grab some notes, and maybe this week sit down with some people and start to talk about the ideas of exclusivity and what it means to really want to live in life with God because it's a totally different idea than our culture thinks about heaven as the pleasure factory. When we really become a people who want to live life with God, things look completely different in all that we do. And so maybe get together and start talking with one another about what that looks like and then encourage one another to begin to live that in a way where we actually trust Jesus in all things because he's good. So, uh, uh, so Jason's wife actually hurt her back. And so he made him pray first and second. And then I took Donald, who's my GC leader. And I said, you get to pray in third service, Donald. So Jason can go home. So just make Don- J- Donald pray. He was so funny. He was lot, uh, Jason's really tall, and the, and the light actually didn't even hit his head. He had to, like, bend down and pray. It's kind of... He's taller than me. He's fair. All right. Join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, as we are a people that are running away from you, I, I thank you for coming and chasing after us and saving us and rescuing us from ourselves, God. I pray that you will fix our hearts, that you will give us new new hearts that focus on you instead of hearts that are focusing on ourselves, that we can be a people that know you and that you can grow a, grow our faith and challenge our faith in you and that you can turn that into a trust in you, God. That is, we're a people that trust you and know you, that we have a relationship with you, God, that it changes us and grows us, and that it affects the world around us. Thank you for being with us and loving us and all the great things that you do. I pray that we can take that knowledge of you and that relationship that we have with you into the relationships that we have with others, that we can share your love with those around us as you have so loved us, God. Thank you, Lord, for all the wonderful things you do. In your good name we pray. Amen.